I think most Australians have some sort of a connection to Bali. Uh, when I was a kid, we used to holiday there basically every two years. It blended everything we wanted in a holiday as a family. We'd stay in Sanua for a week. Me and my sister would spend hours in the hotel pools, eat nazi goreng. Then we'd go to Abud for a few days and further up into the hills for a few days for, I guess, a more cultural experience. I was talking to my mum about this the other day and she said after a while this discomfort started to creep in for her. Of course there were the crowds of sunburnt and unruly Aussies on Kuta Beach who had tacitly transformed Balinese culture into bintangs and fried rice. But tourism in Bali had created this situation where Balinese people were basically forced into working in tourism, accounting for around 80% of the island's economy. And now we're seeing the worst case scenario of this. Bali's economy ground to a halt at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic as international travellers dried up. There was a huge sigh of relief on July 31st when Bali was opened up again to domestic tourism as hundreds of thousands of people had been out of work for months. However, since reopening, Bali has seen infection rates almost double and deaths increase fivefold. This is in Indonesia, a country with notoriously poor testing, so the spread could be much worse than these figures suggest. But for many Balinese, the other option was stay at home, jobless, with no economic support. How did Bali find itself in such a brutal catch-22? Hi, I'm Marco Holden Jeffrey, co-producer of The Kicker, and on this week's episode, we try to find out how Bali became so reliant on tourism. Our reporters Sophie Rayner and Johanna Belinda traced their way back to the island's first tourists and what role Australians had to play in the creation of its tourism economy. They also try to figure out how Bali can move forward and create a tourism industry that truly serves the interests of the Balinese people, not just a rabble of drunken Aussies. In Jakarta and elsewhere, a rising number of people are collapsing with respiratory failure. Monday, there have been uh, six official confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Bali so far. concerns tonight that Bali could become a COVID-19 hotspot. As the spread of the virus accelerates, foreigners are deserting Indonesia in droves. Indonesia has reported its biggest daily jump in COVID-19 cases. Indonesia will deny entry to tourists or anyone wanting a visa on a I'm a bit worried about traveling because the regulations are Estimating aren't clear. a 23 billion US dollar loss because of the pandemic in the first quarter. The Indonesian island of Bali could reopen for tourists in October. Cases are still rising in some regions. Who will go and how will they get there? So finally, we're nine months into the coronavirus pandemic. We had nearly 30 million cases worldwide, 900,000 deaths, 3,000 new cases every day in Indonesia. And Bali is talking about reopening its borders. So what's going on? Well, Bali needs international tourists to survive. Um, international tourism makes up like 60% of Bali's economy directly, and then almost everyone in Bali relies on it in some way. 
Um, but right now, everything's closed indefinitely. The hotels are closed, the restaurants are closed, um, there's no tours, there's no shops, everything's shut. Um, there was a 98% vacancy rate in Bali hotels in May. Nearly 80,000 people have lost their jobs because like thousands of foreigners were arriving every single day and now that's down to zero. No one's there, um, no one's spending any money. There is domestic tourism, like Indonesians are still able to go to Bali. Um, and domestic tourism in, in terms of people, like in terms of population size, it represents like more than half of Bali's um, tourism arrivals. But the problem here is the dollar value. It's the international tourists who spend the money. Um, and with borders shut, with airports closed, the doors have shut, the tourists are out, the money's stopped, um, people in Bali are on their own. Bali needs international tourists. With international borders closed, its governor says the island is losing nearly 10 trillion rupiah per month. That's nearly 100 million Australian dollars. Economists estimate it'll take Bali's tourism sector more than a year to recover. Bali's economic dependence on tourism made the island uniquely vulnerable to the coronavirus shock. In just a few months, its economy has collapsed, its businesses are closed, and its streets are empty. But how did it even get here in the first place? Where did this reliance on international tourism come from? What's that story? That's the song from Morning of the Earth, which was the first surf film shot in Bali. Um... Okay, so there must have been a time before Bali had international tourists. So, yeah, that's right. About 100 years ago, there were about 500,000 people living in Bali, way less than today. Most of them supported themselves through agriculture. People grew rice, peanuts, and other spices for export. People also made beautiful batik fabric, instruments, wood, carvings, and they would trade it with the Chinese, Arab, and European merchants. Domestic tourism opened within Indonesia around 1910, when the Dutch took control of the entire archipelago, but that's not the whole story. Yeah, okay, so I know that um, Indonesia used to be a colony of the Netherlands, but what's the history there? Like, how did Bali become one with the rest of Indonesia? So, yeah, as you might know, Indonesia was colonized by the Dutch in 1595, but their control over the whole archipelago was always tenuous. In fact, Bali and some other islands remained independent. The Dutch has this image of being kind, benevolent colonizers, but in Bali, they were using disproportionate violence and try to control people, and they actually assert their status as well. They orchestrated massacres and deposed kings. Somewhere between late 1800 and 1900, the Western press reported the Dutch human rights violations, and in response, the Netherlands set up the Dutch ethical policy, under which they had an ethical responsibility for the well-being of the colonial subjects. Bali was now known as a living museum of classical culture, and citizens were turned into cultural preserves. Okay, so... We're at this point in the 30s, and people are arriving in Bali by steamship. They're explorers and adventurers and anthropologists and these people who have this intellectual curiosity about Bali. Um, but at some stage, that turns and we see an increase in international visitors, um, international holidaymakers. What was the very first hotel for foreigners in Bali? Where did they go? 
Um, yeah, that's actually a great question. So in the 1930s, most of the early international tourists in Bali stayed in the Kuta Beach Hotel. And interestingly enough, Kuta is still part of Bali's landmark till today. But at that time, Bali still wasn't part of the Republic of Indonesia. In fact, it was part of the state of East Indonesia. Bali became part of the Republic of Indonesia when the Netherlands come recognized Indonesian independence on 29 December 1949. Then also came the 60s and the 70s. Bali saw exponential growth from influx of hippies and surfers. I got in touch with one of those tourists, Debbie Moore. She's a dog groomer and a grandmother. She lives in Perth and she's been going to Bali four times a year since her first trip there nearly 50 years ago. 17. It was... 1973, and I had a, f- a photographer friend, friend who was going over to Bali, um, and he was taking a model, his wife and himself, and a model to do photography, and the model backed out at the last minute, so he asked me to go. And what did what crossed your mind when this photographer said, "I want you to come to Bali with me"? What was your first thought? Yes, please. <laughs> I didn't even know where Bali was or what it was about. Um, he just said he had an extra ticket there. Um, him and his wife were going. Um, and with the extra ticket, if I went um, and replaced the model. She's just agreed to go to this place that she's never heard of, she doesn't speak the language of, she's not scared or anything. And they travel all over the island doing this shoot for his film school. Bali was fresh, it was green. They had the rice paddies, they had the lovely temples, um, they had the dancing. It was beautiful. The tourism economy started with hippies, surfers and wanderers, but it really took off with low-cost airfares and foreigner-friendly policies in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Oh, you Indonesia only gained independence at the end of World War II and it really wanted tourism to help boost its economy. Glamorous hotels were opening, commercial airline travel was becoming widespread and more affordable. The government made visas free and easy to get. Bali was marketed to foreigners as this exotic Mexico of Australia paradise isle. A luxurious escapade. For its part, Bali was initially uncertain about the Indonesian government's enthusiasm for tourism, but by the 80s, it had come around. Foreign visitor numbers to the island tripled between 1985 and 1995. By 2001, when AirAsia started flying into Australia, a thousand tourists were arriving in Bali every day. Just because doesn't mean you can't fly. Fulfill your dreams, go on and give it a try. If you're living in Perth, like Debbie, it's cheaper and quicker to fly to Bali than it is Sydney. So, Debbie has this experience in Bali in the 70s. She comes back home to Perth. She loves it. She doesn't go for a while. Life settles down. And then she starts going again. The island gets under her skin. She's going four times a year, right through the 80s and the 90s. Bali had four million foreign visitors in the Tassin. A decade later, that more than doubled. 
While the tourism economy boomed, Balinese people maintained their cultural identity, especially the philosophy of Trihita Karana. Trihita Karana is a concept of life where they believe they need to keep harmony between other humans, God, and the environment. This also applies to their architecture. You could see that every house or place in Bali has a section called Pamerajan, a section to worship. Unfortunately, the 21st century brought with it capitalism, which does not align with that important principles. Which we saw with the Asian financial crisis in 1997. Exposing the weakness of so-called Asian tigers. The headline, the East Asian economic miracle was no more. Indonesia's economy was crushed um, and then Bali had only just started to recover when it had the bombings in the 2002. The followed, the twin blasts were filled with terror and confusion. Hundreds spilling out onto the street, some injured, others dazed and confused. It's just horrendous. I've never seen anything like it. It's huge. It's scary. Everything has gone. Um, how did that affect international tourism? What happened after that? Yeah, you are right. So this is not the first time that Bali's tourism sectors have seen a decline. In 2002, Bali suffered a major tourism attack and the tragedy killed 202 people. After 2002 attack, it took around two years for Bali to regain trust from the international tourism. And then another attack happened in 2005. It killed 23 people in total. I spoke to Rudolf Gilmore, a writer based in Bali, and he said that those were such a devastating moments in Bali. But that's totally different from the current situation. The Bali bomb was a big wake-up call for the world because it's the first real man-made tragedy here. But there were still tourists here. And of course, a lot of tourists left Bali, but a lot still planned to stay and a lot were still coming in. In terms of like tourism structure, the airport was still open. The government was still going ahead with tourism growth uh, projections and goals to target. In terms of now, it's a worldwide phenomenon, right? So the tourism has dropped, I think, almost 100% in the first few months after lockdown. Many Balinese had to go back to their villages, leaving a lot of streets empty here. With the lockdown situation, Bali experienced almost a 100% drop with their international tourism sectors. Rudolf told me that Bali seems empty without the tourists coming in, especially as Bali is one of the top 10 most visited places by tourists in Indonesia. But this is not the first time Balinese have rallied together to pull through a challenging period. Right after the bombings, the international tourists fell from 964,000 to 610,000 people. Bali survived the SARS and bird flu. Now, with the disappearance of tourism, Balinese people are relying on each other to survive. Tourism machine is super unsustainable. It's causing a lot of cultural degradation in Bali. We're seeing a lot of different projects come up that have nothing to do with the Balinese way of life of Trihita Karana. Uh, there are actually supposed to be laws where, for example, if you build a project in Bali, it has to be uh, around that philosophy. From 31st of July, we will reopen various sectors, including tourism sector. However, it is limited to domestic tourists only. 
Department of Law and Human Rights Decree Number 11-2020, which temporarily forbids foreign citizens from entering Indonesian territory, including province of Bali, remains in force. On the 1st of April this year, just four international flights arrived at Denpasar Airport. Now, it won't see another one until after Christmas. Three more months. Bali has just announced that it won't open its borders to international flights after all. We will wait until 2021. How did they decide this? Um, yeah, you are right. So Bali is the most impacted area in Indonesia during this pandemic. Currently, the economy has dropped to negative 1.14%. But as you might know, Indonesia still has a high COVID-19 transmission and it's just not safe for everyone. Also, Indonesia is still applying the regulation from the Minister of Human Rights number 11 in 2020 that foreigners could not come to Indonesia for now. So I also read that 80% of Balinese households have been economically impacted by the coronavirus. I read that at least 73,600 people from the tourism sectors actually were sent home by their companies. And nearly half of the population have lost their jobs, either permanently or temporarily. And something that I was reading about was the idea of authenticity um, and allowing tourists to have new and exciting and authentic experiences, ones that are really meaningful and genuinely Balinese, not fake authentic, you know, sort of I'm doing air quotes as I say this, not authentic experiences which are manufactured for people by foreign owned multinational corporations. Because we see a lot of the providers in Bali that offer tourism experiences aren't owned by Balinese people. They're not even owned by Indonesian people. They're owned by foreign companies. They are foreign companies. So we see even though there's so much wealth generated in Bali by this tourism economy, not all of that revenue is staying in the country. And that means that there are so many missed opportunities for Balinese people to be engaged in tourism and to reap the benefits of tourism um, and for more meaningful widespread development, development to happen in Bali as a result of this international tourism industry. So one, one thought that could happen from this is a greater investment in tourism infrastructure in smaller areas and rural areas to spread the tourism out further and to disperse international tourists away from Kuta Beach and into more sort of remote areas of Bali that are sorely in need of this tourism spending. Um, and another, another thought is that we were talking before about the economy that existed in Bali before we saw foreign tourists starting to arrive. And this was things like subsistence agriculture, agriculture for, for export, caring for land, caring for water, the idea of Balinese people having this really beautiful, sacred, complex culture and citizens of Bali being the people responsible for that culture's conservation. So that's very much something that we could see happening again now. Oh yeah, I've heard that too. For example, in Buleleng, Bali, the villagers are encouraged to plant their own food by the head of the village. Most of these farmers used to work in the tourism sectors or hospitality area in Bali. The Bali government I know is really pushing to focus more on uh, agriculture. As the pandemic continues to keep us all at home, Balinese are looking forward for regular tourism to return. Most would, would be very, very excited and happy to see international tourism return to Bali as soon as possible. 
Thanks to Sophie Rayner and Johanna Belinda for their excellent reporting on that episode. The Kicker is produced by Ariel Richards and myself, Marco Holden Jeffrey. Special thanks as always to our executive producer, Janak Rogers. Next week, Danielle Collis and Rosa Ritchie enter the insidious world of phone scammers and why so many Australians fall for their tricks. Until then, rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoyed the episode. We're on Instagram at thekicker.pod and Twitter at kickerpod. Follow us for episode previews and other special nuggets. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Sponsored by The Student Doll. Our theme music is by Jack Javins. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and produced on the stolen lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.